Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast, a podcast looking at the future of immersive storytelling and spatial computing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. So today's interview is with Matthew Ball, who has a new book that's coming out on Tuesday, July 19th, called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. So Matthew Ball has been an essayist who's written a number of different influential metaverse essays looking at the structures and forms of spatial computing. You know, it started with Matthew looking at different games like Fortnite and Roblox and how they were more than just games, that they were a window into the future of computing, being immersed into these spatialized worlds and the new economic dynamics and thinking about what are all the different primitives that you need in order to have a viable metaverse, which was first explored in science fiction explicitly in Snow Crash in 1992, but has prior iterations that Matthew also digs into from more of the historical perspective. But he's looking at different aspects of networking, computing, the virtual world engines, interoperability, hardware, payment rails, and blockchains, where things are at right now, and looking at the major players and where they're going in the future. For me, it's the most comprehensive summary of all these different dimensions and diving deep into each of the nuances of each of these realms and digging through a lot of the technical details of that. And at the end of it, you come away seeing there's this larger story building towards this transition from 2D to 3D and into more of a spatial computing realms. But it's not just in the context of XR, of VR and AR, but these larger infrastructures of 5G, cloud computing, distributed computing, all of these things emerging together is creating new realms of immersive computing, what's been popularly referred to as the metaverse. So that's what we're covering on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Matthew happened on Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. My name is Matthew Ball. I'm the author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, which comes out on July 19th. But I wear a different set of hats. That is an investor, an entrepreneur, a producer in TV, film, and video games usually in and around this theme, but sometimes in more traditional media and so forth. Yeah, I read an interview that you did with SIGGRAPH that traces the evolution of this as an idea where you had some essays about Fortnite and then you moved into the metaverse and then did a 35,000 word series of essays on the metaverse. And then now you've tripled that into over 100,000 words of the metaverse. And so maybe you could give a bit more context as to how you started to write some of these series of essays on the metaverse. Sure. So you're quite right. I talk about in my book the fact that the metaverse is a nearly 30-year-old term. Of course, anyone who's listening to this podcast know it originated in 1992 snow crash. But the ideas it describes can be traced back nearly a century. That starts in the 1930s with the first known discussion around VR goggles into immersive VR environments, AI holography through the 30s and 50s. And so it's not new that we've considered the metaverse. I've been familiar with the term since the late 90s, and I've known about games that aspired to build it since around that same time. But my personal experience relates to my last job, which was head of strategy at Amazon Studios, which at the time ran nearly everything that we think of Prime Video to be. And for much of the last decade, that was the frontier. The new frontier in media was direct-to-consumer streaming services. And I started to get the sense that gaming really was ready for primetime. Of course, it had been growing slowly for 
50 years, but it felt like it was on the cusp of cultural domination that really didn't even seem possible at the start of the last decade. And then in 2018, I started playing a lot of Fortnite, a lot of Roblox, and I could start to get this sense that it wasn't just that gaming was moving to the front lines. It's that this fantastical idea of the metaverse was starting to become a practical opportunity and that some had actually started to build it, that the foundation was in place. And so I wrote a piece at the end of 2018 called Fortnite is the future, but not for the reasons you think. And the goal of the piece was to break down many of the narratives about Fortnite at the time that were running the day. That was wow, I can't believe this game is free and yet it generates more revenue than any other. Wow, look at this game's cross-platform nature. Wow, look at the idea that this is being patched on a weekly basis. And I was trying to articulate that none of these things were new, actually. What was new was their creative implementation, the enormity of their popularity. But more important was how it was leading up to the metaverse and what was starting to become a visible metaverse strategy at Epic, though they hadn't said as much. A year later, I wrote a dedicated metaverse piece, and this was pre-pandemic, that became quite popular as the pandemic began to take off. Then a year later, I wrote the metaverse primer, which was an effort to really encapsulate my learnings over the past year and a half about the technical requirements. And then of course, in 2021, we saw the metaverse popularized as a theme. Mark starts talking about it in July. In October, he renames the company. By the end of the year, Unity and Roblox are the two largest gaming IPOs ever. Roblox is the largest gaming platform in the world. And so I decided to write this book, which really culminates five years of writing and thinking on the topic. Yeah, I just had a chance to finish it. And I think it's a pretty authoritative history assessing all the different confluence and and crescents of all these technologies coming together. And what I really appreciated about the book was pointing towards different examples from each of these different sections that are paradigmatic examples that can extract the philosophical principles from those examples and extrapolate them out as they continue to, to fuse out into larger and larger scales and out throughout the culture. But before we start to dive more into the book, I wanted to get a bit more context as to your background and your journey into this, because your style is very interesting in your writing it because I get the sense that through the process of writing your essays, I know you've had conversations with people like Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm not sure if you've been in conversations directly with Tim Sweeney, but you're certainly well-informed and at the center of a lot of it, but your writing style is very distant in the sense where I'm not seeing any direct quotes. You're using quotes from other news articles. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process for how you put this stuff together and if you're doing consulting with some of these companies behind the scenes, or if it's just more of your role as an analyst to be able to immerse yourself to the extent that you do, and then try to gather all the publicly available information to draw out the larger economic story that makes this argument that you're seeing all these different confluence of technologies come together. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process for how you do this sense-making process of what's happening in the realm of technology and where it's all going. So you're right. In the book, I don't use any direct quotations. And in fact, that was partly a reflection of the constrained writing environment. I wrote the book over three and a half months at the end of last year. There really wasn't the opportunity to go deep, to do investigatory pieces, to understand the multi-year history of many of its leading individuals. And so that was partly a constraint. But the goal here really wasn't to get deep into any one company. In fact, one of the things that I've take personally 
a lot of happiness from is you'll note that there's oppositional or competing endorsements for the book. So I have Epic CEO and Unity CEO. I have the Sony CEO, and then I have the Microsoft Gaming CEO. And that was because my goal with the book was not to talk about a specific instantiation of the metaverse, not a specific philosophy or ideology. It wasn't to go into the history of Tim Sweeney's efforts to build the metaverse, nor those of Second Life. It was to provide a survey as to the technologies and the multiple different theses. I got one piece of feedback from the CEO of a large tech company saying, I loved your blockchain section, but I came away not sure whether or not you were pro or con. And I said, that's the best compliment I can imagine because I wasn't trying to advocate for this. So when it comes to your question as to the writing process, most of the education came from entrepreneurs and founders. I have a venture fund. I'm a partner at Makers Fund. I'm an industry advisor at KKR. And so I do early stage investing, kind of mid-stage and then late stage growth equity investing. And those entrepreneurs are outstanding because they have 20 years of experience. Sometimes they're disgruntled. Sometimes they feel like they wasted 10 years of their life trying to solve a problem at a big company that was incapable of doing it. And so there's this bounty of information. But I think I've always been good at doing at distance summaries of the marketplace. And I see this very much as, you know, the manifestation of five years of work on the theme, but 15 years of writing as a blogger. Yeah. Yeah. I think my assessment of the overall book is that you get the overall story completely nailed and correct in terms of my own assessment. And I really actually did appreciate your critiques of the blockchain because, you know, there's things that I come to a lot of similar conclusions in terms of like there's potential for some of it, but there's also a lot of challenges and risks and other problems that you elaborate in your book. But I guess one of the other differences that I'd say from how I approach covering the industry is a much more direct phenomenological immersed into the embodied experience of a lot of these technologies. And I, I had a harder sense of seeing where you're oriented when it comes to the direct experience of virtual reality or the direct experience of AR. Because you talk a lot about Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft and EVE Online as these kind of leading indicators, and maybe just one mention of VR chat or Rec Room, which, you know, for me, when I think about the future of the metaverse and immersive technologies, I think about my own experiences I've had in Rec Room and VR chat and the qualities of presence. And in your definition of the metaverse, you mentioned presence, but I, I wouldn't say there's a deep elaboration of the concepts of presence within this book. So I'd love to get a little bit more context for you of like your own journey into VR and how you assess the roles of VR and AR technologies into the continued evolution of the metaverse. So I love this question. I really like VR. I get super excited about AR. There are many people in my network who just believe that this technology is so far off that it's actually absurd that we spend much time focusing on it. I certainly think that technologies are hard the problems are hard, they're worth solving. But I am also of two perspectives. One is that they're not nigh, which is to say, I don't think that we're going to be replacing our smartphones within this decade. I don't think we're gonna be doing it probably within the first few years of the next decade. The second thing is I don't believe that there were a requirement for the metaverse. There was this great tweet thread I'm sure you saw from Neil Stevenson last week or the week before. And he talks about the idea that when he wrote Snow Crash, Centering it around AR and VR were what he called a good hypothesis, especially if you were a science fiction author at the time. And he said what he couldn't have imagined 
was that decades later, you would have billions of people inside 3D rendered real-time environments interacting purely via touch or even WASD, right? Keys on a keyboard for forward, back, right, and left. That would have been an unintuitive estimate. And so I think about VR and AR devices as more intuitive, as being essential to further immersion in the metaverse. They are doubtlessly destined to become the best, most popular and preferred way to interact with these environments. But I don't think they're a requirement and in fact, and this is probably one of the reasons why you see them as relatively non-focal, is I think that separating the relevance of 3D simulation and the metaverse from that hardware helps to explain to many people that the metaverse is not 2050. The metaverse doesn't need you to believe we're going to replace our smartphone tomorrow. It's actually about the more underlying technologies, a persistent virtual network that is relatively endpoint agnostic, doesn't mean you're not gonna have different endpoints with different experiences. My personal experience with VR, I mean, so at Makers Fund, we're early investors in VR chat. I use it a lot, I find it really fun. I'm really lucky that I don't experience nausea. And I'm also, I think, fortunate in the sense that I just have a more intuitive sense and feel for virtual immersion. And to the extent I might be predisposed to nausea, I think my like mental expectations help. But I think it's an incredible environment for young people. Like when you I sound old, but like I'm now ranting because I get excited about this topic. But, you know, Chris Dixon talks about the fact that when a person realizes that their active brain can't overcome what they know to be a fantasy in VR, it's a pivotal moment, right? You put someone at the edge of a cliff in VR, and even though it's low res, even though it's low frame rate, they struggle to jump. That's the first time you can tell this technology may be far from prime time but it's not far from substantial immersion that deeply affects us. The second is when you give it to children and they have this natural instinctive feel. You see this a lot in rec room and VR chat where to some extent, I still know I'm in VR when I'm in VR, but you look at a six-year-old and they're just playing around and like that idea that like they're turning their head to the right and it's not a physical thing they're looking at, that boundary just seems totally diffused at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes total sense. And also really agree with that because I know Tony Parisi came out with his seven principles of the metaverse. And one of it was that the, it's hardware agnostic. And I think another big point that's made in your book is how Fortnite was catalyzing this cross-platform play that both Fortnite, Minecraft, and Roblox are available on all these different platforms. And so Rec Room is another one that I think is taking that same path of being on all these different platforms. So I think that's actually a key part to not just tie it to the VR. I'm wondering if you could maybe, I, I, I watched the video where you just rattle off your authoritative definition. I'm wondering if you could just share that definition and then how you've structured the book because you're breaking down each the different chapters, going into great detail of your definition. And so I'd love to have you share that and I have some thoughts. Sure. So I actually cheat a little bit. I describe the metaverse primarily around technical keywords and concepts. I'm not actually defining it. The reason why I do this is if you take a look at the definition of the internet, you're talking about it either as a network of networks, again, a little bit of a description, but you talk about it as the internet protocol suite, not a very helpful definition. It's more technical. It's talking about the protocols. A description of the internet tends to be more intuitive. So I describe the metaverse as a massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds 
which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users, each afforded an individual sense of presence, while supporting continuity of data such as communications, identity, history, entitlements, objects, and so forth. What we're really doing is describing the technical requirements and experiential observations to have a proper parallel plane of existence, right? That's essentially describing the things that exist in the real world today. And so the middle third of my book is a deep dive into what's required for that to work. We're talking about networking capabilities, computing requirements, the actual tools to create and render virtual environments interoperability standards to exchange information coherently, comprehensively, and securely. Talking about the payment systems that are required to actually build a thriving metaverse, not just a functional one. An examination into blockchain and why many believe it's essential, others believe it's useless in all applications, and what potential middle grounds might look like. That's the middle third of the book. It's building the metaverse. The first third is focused on why now? What is it? Explaining that definition in great detail, but also getting into some of the fundamental questions as to why do people believe that there's a war here? Why is it important who wins? And then why, and this was one of the most fun things for me to examine, does it seem that the forerunners of a multi-trillion dollar transformation are gaming companies, which have otherwise been a relatively trivial part of the economy focused just on consumer leisure? And then the last third of the book is the more speculative element. Start to talk about what might the value of the metaverse be, who might win, which technologies are likely to prevail, what sorts of businesses will be built. And then for consumers concerned about what the future might be, how do they get involved? What should they do? And then lastly, I, I should note, I finished by trying to remind people what you can and can't know about the metaverse today. Yeah. My experience of reading each of those chapters was that there was a lot of really low-level technical details, but as you get through it all, the big picture all comes together, I think, as you see the confluence, just like you talk about near the end in terms of the iPhone moment of the iPhone, the concrescence of all these technologies coming together. And so I think similarly, you're telling the story of all these things that are coming together right now and why it's important now. A couple of things I wanted to ask. One is that I know that the challenge of writing a book is that there's always stuff that happens afterwards. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was the Cronus Group and the Metaverse Standards Forum that had this big coalition. In the book, you're talking about how it's very difficult to have people collaborate. And I guess when I was reading those, I was like, yeah, but they have already collaborated on OpenXR. There already are a lot of these interoperability efforts. There's already open standards in terms of object formats, in terms of GLTF, and there's USD. So I'm just curious what your reaction is in terms of some of this latest news from the Cronus Group and the Metaverse Standards Forum. And if that supports a lot of this larger thesis that you have and the difficulties of coming up with those standards of interoperability, and if you have any additional thoughts that you didn't have time to include in your book because it wasn't even created yet. So I think I'm very optimistic in the book about the establishment of interoperable standards. It's the single biggest area of pushback I receive, which is, do you actually believe this can happen? And so I do. And I believe that the primitives or pressures or gravity of expanded networks will deliver it. In that regard, the Metaverse Standards Forum is an important first step. At the same time, I'd say the following. The easiest part about establishing standards is always getting a bunch of people in a room together. We've seen that numerous times. You're right. We have OpenXR and WebXR. 
but very few people support them. And more importantly, their antecedents, OpenGL and WebGL, are very rarely supported. None of the major consoles support them, for example. Actually, Oculus is the most used console to use these. You'll also find that there are multiple other standards forums of some way, shape, or form. In some regard, Kronos exists to do that. But then you have the WEF's XR and Metaverse Standards Group. You've also got the XR Association. There are multiple different groups. Most people sign up for them because they would rather be heard than not heard, and they would rather shape the standards than have their competitors shape them. I use this XKCD comic in the book that basically jokes that a bunch of people get together to say there are 14 standards, we should have just one, that's how you end up with 15 standards. And so that's true, but I'm still hopeful, right? You have to have communication to actually end up aligning on something. At the same point, we can see some important omissions from the Metaverse Standards Group. Most obviously, Google and Apple, neither are participating in the forum. But I think more notable is the fact that there aren't really other application or content layer members. Epic is in there and Meta is in there. But Activision isn't in there. EA is not in there. Roblox isn't in there. Ubisoft isn't in there. And so what ends up happening is Lots of technologists can agree on what the best protocol or tech or standard will be. But if it's not then deployed into application layer services content, it's just a technical standard, right? In some regard, it's like Esperanto. We come up with better artificial languages all the time, but if they're not actually adopted and deployed, it doesn't matter. And so again, I'm optimistic. This is right. I actually think that the Metaverse Standards Forum has far more participants than I would have originally guessed and they're bona fide top to bottom. But no one has been asked yet to make a concession. No one has been asked to deploy a standard that doesn't optimize for their system or that might advantage one of their competitors. And we don't yet have an operating network. There's also another point that many have made at this point, which is there wasn't too much on ethics, if if anything, as to how are those standards going to manage for the softer issues around different platforms rather than just technical interoperation. But again, it was just announced. Uh, the hard work is yet to come. Yeah, I was involved with the IEEE Global Initiative on the Ethics of Extended Reality, where we've been digging into some of those issues. But yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. One other big point I wanted to get in, because I know we have limited time here, is the antitrust aspects of both Google and Apple seem to be really, really key in terms of you know, there was a lawsuit from Epic Games and Tim Sweeney going against Apple. There's a lot of information from Discovery that was made available that's in your book that helps paint the picture of some of these different potentially anti-competitive dynamics of these duopolies of both Google with Android and Apple's iPhone with iOS. In terms of the 30% tax, it seems to me that there likely needs to be some sort of government intervention to break up this. Otherwise, we're going to have the same type of thing with Meta seems to be wholeheartedly adopting the same thing that they're critiquing, like Zuckerberg's critiquing Apple around the 30% tax, but then they're turning around and doing the exact same thing and then adding even more in terms of Horizon Worlds in terms of their taxes. So it seems to me that in order to really have this open interoperable metaverse that is going to even have the potential to have like an open web manifestation, we need to break apart this 30% tax that's at the hardware layer Otherwise, we're going to be living into this world where just a handful of companies control our digital future. So I'd love to hear some reflections on that, because that seems to be, for me at least, one of the big takeaways. I'm glad that you are articulating that, because I have similar frustrations with how Apple drags its feet with implementing WebXR and not really great implementations with 
WebGL and it all serves their own ecosystem, but in order to break that apart, it feels like you need to have at least some level of government intervention. So I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's nice that you and I are speaking today on what is it, July 5th, where the EU started to announce more of their digital markets reforms, and they're coming pretty firmly for a lot of the concerns that we have, or you and I have, which generally seem to be shared by many in the developer community, Epic Games as one example. The challenge about the metaverse is we're talking about a virtual platform, a persistent network of experiences, which exist irrespective of any execution, any hardware, any platform. And yet we have to access them through a platform, a hardware device. There are essentially two of them. And of the others, they're all contending to be the payment gateway. Why wouldn't you, right? Like Visa is one of the best businesses on earth and the Apple App Store is an even better one. And it's not just that it increases payment fees. It's that as you've also astutely observed, they cripple competitive technologies, they stymie competitive business models. And we know that it's ultimately transferring money from the pockets of independent creators to the largest and wealthiest companies on earth. At the end of the day, I think the challenge here is we're actually talking about in some regard, penalizing companies for having been so extraordinarily successful, for having built extraordinarily great products, right? The Apple iPhone's integration verticalization is why the mobile era is so accelerated. We wouldn't be where we are today without that device. And yet we can now start to feel that as we shift to this next platform, it's impeding us. Sometimes I think you can very justifiably say in a maliciously, deliberately self-preferential and externally punitive way. But again, talking about the EU, we see evidence of regulatory action. I think you can see, like I'm Canadian, Tim Cook did not used to do interviews with the Toronto Star on privacy. I think that they're doing that because they understand that they now need to win hearts and minds very differently to maintain their stewardship of the world's most important computing platform. But yeah, we need a lot of regulatory action. I'm hopeful there as well. I spent a lot of time at the end of the book saying that we're disappointed with the last 15 years of digital regulation, but many of us, especially in the millennial generation, assume that that's the pattern for regulators. And of course, we have political dysfunction that's new today, but through all of the 20th century and the 19th century, new technologies were very vigorously defended by regulators. Telecommunications, energy, rail, steel. The government was usually pretty early. The Internet Engineering Task Force comes from DOD. The Internet comes from DOD. And the U.S. government had the foresight to relinquish control of those working groups and birds of feathers and standards bodies, understanding the criticality of doing so. And so I'm hopeful, but the challenges are tough. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the last question I have is what do you think the ultimate potential of the metaverse might be and might be able to enable? Well, so this is always a fun question because you have Jensen Huang, the founder and CEO of NVIDIA, talking about the fact that he believes that the GDP of the metaverse will essentially eventually exceed that of the physical world. The physical world economy today is roughly 70 trillion. We have another 20 trillion that's coming from digital. And so we're looking at 50, 60 trillion over time that might go to the metaverse. You can describe it differently as a billions of individual people reaching almost every consumer, every country, every sector globally. But the humanist perspective is, look, I believe the digital era has had a lot of bad things, dis and misinformation, data rights, data security, the role of algorithms, toxicity, abuse, harassment, radicalization. But I think that technology is fundamentally 
agnostic. And I think that overall, I believe that the internet has been a profoundly good thing for the world, especially when it comes to the democratization of information. And so I'm hopeful that the metaverse will allow us to correct many of the problems of the last 15 years, that we as developers, users, and consumers can positively affect the trajectory of the metaverse, who leads it, with which philosophies and why, but that fundamentally it will continue that transformation. I talk about in the book that education is an area of extraordinary importance, but which has been barely impacted by technology, especially when it comes to access to educational resources. And so I'm hopeful that the metaverse can really improve that while also bringing more job opportunities to those who, unlike myself, are not born upper middle class in Canada, in a large city with access to many of the best jobs in the world. Awesome. Is there anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community? Well, well, Kent, let me ask you a question. What are you least certain about the metaverse? Well, I mean, I really appreciated your elaboration on the blockchain because I think that the way that I see the blockchain, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer foundation came up with an accounting for planetary survival white paper. And what they described was the difference between what they see as blockchain based upon libertarian values versus blockchain based upon commons based shared resources values. So every single compelling aspect of a blockchain use was around like the render token or shared use of resources to do distributed computing. So I think there's a real compelling use case for the future of distributed computing. But in terms of the libertarian value exchange that is doing rent sinking behaviors and basically replicating the scarcity model of the existing economy, I'm not convinced that buying and selling virtual land plots is going to be the future. I think it's going to be much more experiential based and more along the lines of what Ben Sweeney and Fortnite have been doing to create really vibrant ecosystems and economies. So I really appreciated that you've elaborated some of those different use cases of the blockchain. But I think for me, at least, I think there's a lot of engineering flaws that I don't know at this point can be overcome because there's like civil attacks and with proof of stake moving over, then you could have basically one whale that overtakes and controls everything. So it's not actually decentralized. So every functional utility that's coming out of the decentralized systems have some sort of centralized point that I feel like can be vulnerable to being taken over and replicating the existing power dynamics of the existing economy. So that's my hot take in terms of where the cryptocurrency is, that it it's actually not a matter of the technology agnostic. It's more the values that are underneath the technology. So whether it's being driven by a libertarian scarcity model that's trying to do rent-seeking behavior, or it's generating more communal shared resources to create something that would not be possible in an individual. And I'm, I'm more excited about the decentralized web effort from the Internet Archive and more of those technologies, the render token, and other things that are trying to actually bring utility that are experiential rather than for speculation and creating backdoors for fraud and abuse and money laundering and all the stuff that are the challenges with that. So, and when I'm reading your book, that's the things that I appreciated that you're articulating those perspectives because I felt like my perspectives are being reflected in your book. But yeah, to me, that's the biggest open question in terms of that. For me, I'm all in in terms of spatial computing. And I also appreciated the call out to like control labs and the change from 2D to 3D, meaning mm -hmm. that moving from a keyboard and a mouse and having the user input that's using more electromyography and risk-based inputs and neural inputs, non-invasive neural inputs, brain-computer interfaces, that for me, the shift from 2D to 3D has to do with the types of embodied and spatial computing that comes from completely new human-computer interaction interfaces that seems so much like science fiction of being able to detect the firing of an individual motor neuron, meaning that it can detect your intentions without you actually moving and how that's going to be translated into how we interface with computing, I think, is going to blow people's minds. 
So I appreciated that you included the control labs in there as well, because I do think that the ways that we interface with computing is going to be so radically different mm -hmm. in the next 15 to 20 years. And just from what we've seen already in terms of the neuroscience and these principles, we're both kind of identifying these new methods of interfacing with the spatial computing, I think are going to be so revolutionary that once they really look into the neuroscience and the technology trends, it's going to get really weird. But yeah, the biggest questions are the centralization of the power, having just a small handful of companies that are controlling everything and privacy and the ethics are the big things and neuro rights are the other things. For me, that's the thing that I'm not knowing how that's all going to play out. If we're actually going to come to the other side of this and figure out how to, as a collective, overcome some of the power law dynamics of having a small handful of companies that are controlling disproportionate and asymmetrical power and actually what the business models are actually going to be that go beyond surveillance capitalism it seems to be fueling the existing methods. And if there's going to be ways for people to take more ownership of their data, but also have business models that go completely away from that more extractive model of surveillance capitalism. So anyway, that's a little bit more of my thoughts. No, I'm, I'm totally aligned with you. I mean, look, the virtual scarcity model, virtual real estate, I don't believe in. I want to reserve the right to change my mind, but I don't see something there yet. It seems like, you know how we always start every new computing wave by trying to recreate the thing closest to reality? right? The skeuomorphism, the game center on the iPhone, the yellow lined notepad on your iPhone notes app. This seems like the worst possible insubstantiation of trying to reproduce the real world with more tools virtually. But I think everything, the rest that you said is really, I'm aligned with. So I think we can leave it there. The only other thing that I'd say is the thing that excites me most about the advent of new hardware is the accessibility improvements are extraordinary. The Xbox accessibility controller, what we're starting to see with Control Labs and hopefully BCI can bring so many people into the digital era, not to mention virtual experiences that simply cannot today. And I think that that's a really important good. We talk about the internet and games bringing people together, but often forget how many people just can't through physical ability. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for writing this book and taking all the time to detail all these things. I think you've provided a really nice mapping of where things are at now and where they could be going with a lot of examples to, to get some insights for the deeper patterns and trends of this metaverse that you're helping to specify the structures and forms. So thanks again for uh, writing it all down in the book. Now it's not easy to do that and to join me here on the podcast to help unpack it all. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So that was Matthew Ball. He's a strategist and venture capitalist, as well as a essayist who's been writing a number of different articles on the metaverse and has a new book that's coming out on July 19th called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. So I have a number of different takeaways about this interview is that, first of all, well, for me, the overall story that's being told, I think, is a really authoritative summary of how to start to define what the metaverse is and where it's going to go. From the full tech stack perspective, I think it's a really great model to look at. There's been a lot of hype around the metaverse, a lot of crypto-based projects that have co-opted as the term. I was actually really excited to see the pushback even that Matthew was saying, trying to be a little bit more cautious how some of the blockchain and Web3 and crypto-based attempts or co-opting of the phrase in the metaverse 
that his definition is trying to make firm boundaries that it could include some of that, but it's not requiring that. It's also not requiring any specific hardware from VR or AR. So there's also hardware agnostic in that way, especially when you start to look at the cross-platform experience of something like Fortnite, Roblox, or Minecraft, that eventually over time, and Roblox is already starting to integrate different aspects of VR, and there's been VR versions of Minecraft and as we move forward, there's going to be more and more dimensions of XR technologies that are going to be part of the portal of the metaverse. My experience of reading the book is that it's diving into a lot of the low-level technical aspects and details to sift through. But I think at the end of it, I have a much greater appreciation and understanding of nuances of like the latency and all the other trends. And I think of Simon Wardley's ways that he breaks out technological diffusion and evolution. And so there's different ways technology is diffusing out into the culture, but it's also evolving in different ways that come up into an academic prototype that's kind of proving out that concepts even possible. And then it moves into more of a custom bespoke enterprise instantiation, where it's something that's maybe something handcrafted or something that's a very unique experience. And then those principles then get embedded into more of a consumer product that's operating more at consumer scale, and then eventually gets into mass ubiquity. So a lot of books like this are trying to say, okay, what is the pattern here between this is a concept of an idea, let's look at where the first idea of this was, maybe the first deployment of the idea in a context and in a community, and then how can we take those ideas and then extrapolate that out and see how that gets spread out to all these other various different contexts. I think that's the idea of the metaverse, is to look at different things like Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox and EVE Online and you know the MUDs and all the other long history of all these different virtual worlds, Second Life but adding the more real-time dimensions of it and dimensions of cross-platform across all these different media and then adding in their virtual augmented reality. If there's any one stylistic thing is that it's very distant in looking at things from an objective and quantified perspective, looking at a lot of numbers and trying to make these arguments for what's happening in the industry and just trying to focus on what those numbers are and use that to paint a larger picture for these markets as they're growing. It's something that as a venture capitalist, as well as a strategist, is part of his job of his previous head of strategy at Amazon Studios of being aware of all these different dynamics and understand where things are at right now and to project out how things are going to be shifting out to the future and at what scale they're going to be at. And so there wasn't a lot about his own personal embodied and phenomenological experiences. That for me, a really connection to that. But he told me that he made the explicit decision to try to make it that he's not focusing on any one specific aspect of these companies, but that he's trying to paint this larger picture for all these different players that by the end of it, it's not biasing towards any one of those individual players or experiences or his own direct embodied experiences for what the metaverse is. For me, a huge part of this future of spatial computing is the direct embodied phenomenological experience of all the different qualities of presence and being immersed into these different worlds and what the experience of that is like and where the structures and forms of that are going. And so there's a little bit of that in terms of looking at the meta businesses and the different contexts and, you know, who the players are and who he expects to be influential and shaping where this is all going. It's very difficult to know how all these things combine together. I mean, we had a whole pandemic and the pandemic has shifted things in a way that has been a catalyst towards a lot of these different virtual worlds, especially things like Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft and Discord have become these de facto social spaces for people to congregate on online. And that's at the mass scale. And then within the VR context, you have VR chat and Rec Room and Meta's Horizon Worlds that's still emerging and growing. So you have these spaces, these virtual worlds and moving into these virtual world platforms 
reflecting that the market is not at the point where it's at a huge, massive scale. And that by 2030, he's citing John Riccatello from Unity saying that they expect around like 250 million headsets and relative to smartphones, when there's like billions of smartphones out there, you know, 250 million is a lot smaller by 2030. But, you know, who knows what that number actually is? You know, part of my resistance is that I've saw so many numbers of the years and most of them were just completely wrong. And so I just kind of stopped looking at them just because for me, it wasn't the thing that was what was so interesting about it. For me, the interesting thing about XR is how compelling some of the experiences are. But in terms of like trying to look at the larger decisions that these companies make, they have to make businesses out of it and they have to look at the scale of where things are at and how much of their entire business they can start to rely upon. I think by 2030, it could be a lot more than... 250 million. I, I don't know. It's hard to know what will continue to happen within the culture and the technology driving things. I think I expect a lot of new XR devices that are coming out in the realm of 2024, 2025 that is starting to have the next generation of augmented reality. But you know, there's going to be four different VR headsets that are coming out over the next couple of years, what's been reported from the information on Meta's roadmap. So hard to tell whether or not something that's been exponentially growing and doubling, if there's going to be a device that's just so compelling that it actually exceeds that mark of 250 million by 2030. So highly recommend checking out the book at the end of it. Really happy to have a much better understanding of where things are at and where they're going and to get some of the thoughts. And I hope to, at some point, maybe have more of an extended conversation with Matthew to get into more of the nuances of some of my reactions to the book or where I think things are at and what I'm looking at in terms of seeing where the future of the medium is going across the variety of different contexts and also a lot of the ethics as well. I mean, there's some stuff that he's starting to talk about, but that's what I see as some of the biggest open questions in terms of privacy, accessibility, harassment, diversity, inclusion, but also also the threats to privacy and neural rights, the right to mental privacy, the right to identity, the right to agency, some of these neuroethics dimensions of XR technologies that are going to continue to be a big part of the conversation as well. So that's been a big part of my own work as well as organizations like the XR Association, XRSI, and the IEEE Global Initiative on the Ethics of Extended Reality that I've been involved with for the past couple of years. So yeah, overall, just a really authoritative and compelling summary, helping to point out some of the deeper philosophical principles of the metaverse and where it's at and where it's going in the future. So that's all I have for today. And I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, then please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener part of podcast. So I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring in this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening.